I invite you to take a Bible and to open it to Psalm 146. If you're just visiting us this morning, welcome. If you've been with us here in the new year, this is the third Sunday in a row that we are coming to Psalm 146. A psalm that I hope to commit to memory. It's a New Year's resolution that I haven't fulfilled yet, and I'm thankful there's hopefully a little bit more year left to fulfill it in and to have it memorized. But I'll be reading again rather than reciting it. But this is on page 492 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there in the pew. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. And on that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. And that will conclude our reading. We take the opportunity at the beginning of the year as a congregation to consider afresh what it means when we say we exist to love God, care for one another, and to communicate his word. That's a, a way of just summarizing what Jesus referred to as the two great commandments to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And then in his ascension back to heaven, he gave a commission to his followers to go into all the world and make disciples, to, to pass on and communicate the message that he had shared with them and the good news that he was a risen savior. And so that as his followers, we have this responsibility to communicate. We have a message to share with one another. And so the first Sunday of the year, we considered what it means to love God and hear from this psalm, the psalmist's opening invitation to praise the Lord and to praise him, oh my soul, from the inside out, to praise him as long as we live, for better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, and to know the joy of praising God forever, as long as I have my being, that God has made us to exist forever. And if we love him and enter into relationship with him, we can experience that joy of praising him not only now, but forever. And then last week we considered what does it mean to love our neighbor, to care for one another. And we saw in this description of God as the one who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, who sets the prisoners free, etc. That if this is how God loves the world and looks down upon the world and cares for these people. That if we're going to call ourselves followers of his, people should be able to describe us in this way too. That we live our lives with the desire and the joy 
to pursue justice for the oppressed, to give food to the hungry, to set the prisoners free, to open the eyes of the blind, to lift up those who are bowed down, to love the righteous, etc. And if we do that as a community, there's an attractiveness to it that makes people want to belong, that they feel welcome and, and want to be a part. And now today we take the same psalm and consider what it means about the good news that we have the joyful privilege to communicate to the world, which is inclusive of those first two, but we're going to be a little bit more specific on what this passage says about the hope that is found in God for the world, for the people that don't know him. What is it that we get to communicate to others? This psalm reveals to us in this description that we can say to the world, this is who God is. If you say the word God or hear it and you just think of an abstract power or force or maybe something or someone that kind of got it all started, but then you can't see him and you can't touch him, and so we're not really sure if he's around anymore, and, and that's sort of the perception that can be a default perception for many of us, even if he's there, and he maybe got it all started, we're not really sure what he's like. Well, for us as Christians, the gift of Scripture is that we have people over generation after generation who then had encounters with him, who then increasingly described him for us. And we see this revelation that this is what God is like, that he did make heaven and earth and the sea, but he then just didn't abandon it. He didn't just move on to something else but he's watching over everything that he made and created, and his posture towards the world is one of compassion and love and concern for the creation that he's made. It's because he loved us that he made us in the first place, and it's because he loved us, even though there, is, there are so many things that happen in this world that break his heart, that go against his will and his purposes in our creation, in his love for us, he then pursues justice and healing and wholeness and restoration. This is who he is, and this is what we believe. We don't get this picture of God just from nature itself. We could stand at the at a edge of a cliff at the Grand Canyon and say, I think there's something bigger out there than me. Uh, we can stand at the shore of an ocean and say, I I know that there's life beyond me and there's things I don't control and understand. But the vastness of the Grand Canyon or the immensity of the ocean or the innumerable stars in the sky at night don't tell us specifically and particularly that the person who did all of that loves us. We need the person who did all that to say it to tell us or we'll never know it and we need him to tell it to us also when we encounter so many of the realities that are described when we are hungry when we are oppressed when we are imprisoned and when we're experiencing those things it's natural for all of us to say is there anyone out there and if there is does anyone care about what I'm going through and the psalmist is saying, yes, this is who God is. He cares about us, and he cares about those things. We can come to him with our burdens. We can lay them down at his feet. 
And it's in that same posture, in God's heart toward us in love and goodness, that it also says at the end of verse 9, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. See, it's possible for us to take a psalm like this and just grab on to the one or two things that sound good to us and say, yeah, this is what God is like. Because I'm going through this, I want to hear that he's like this, but if there's anything described in here that isn't something we're immediately going through or we don't want to hear, almost like in a buffet line, we might feel like we can take the parts we want and leave it out. But that doesn't work with God. Because everything described here flows from his same heart and character. And in his love for us, and in his working justice for the oppressed, and giving food to the hungry, and setting the prisoners free, he does that because he's a holy God. And in his holiness, he is opposed to sin. He is at war with it. He's not passively indifferent to it. That which brings oppression and injustice and hunger and sickness and bows people down, God is against. And there's a reality, therefore, in this psalm for all of us to know that we will stand before him. And while he is loving and his care and his compassion and his concern for us, he is also against what is unholy, what is sinful, and what is destructive. And there's no conflict in God in those two realities. This isn't that he's loving on Monday, but he's in a bad mood on Tuesday, and then he, you know, Wednesday when he gets over the, you know, the halfway point of the week, he's better. No, no, he's always loving and he's always holy. He's full of both. He's always perfect. He's always pure. And so in his love of us who are unholy and who struggle and who sin, his love pursues us in such a way as to rescue us from our wickedness. Because he knows what in his holiness he will do to wickedness. He will bring it to an end. There is a judgment day coming. And the scripture from beginning to end holds that before all of us to seriously consider. And that is part of the message that we communicate to the world. It's not just what we look like to each other. It's not just what our boss might think of us or whether our parents are proud of us or not. It is that one day all of us will stand before the maker of heaven and earth. And when Jesus Christ came into this world, he said to anyone who was willing to listen, don't be afraid of the person who can only kill the body. Be afraid of the one who has power over the body and can punish us to hell. Take that seriously. Don't allow a sense of getting away with it for a day here or a week here or a year and not getting caught or getting caught but kind of getting a slap on the wrist. Don't let any of that allow you to believe that there is not a judgment day coming 
and that there is not a perfect judge who will rule over that day. Take it seriously. The one who made us and who knows us will therefore not ever be able to be deceived by us or tricked. What he does will be perfectly holy and righteous. And we communicate that to the world, to those who in this world have immense power and privilege and to the youngest and smallest and most vulnerable. All of us stand before him. And therefore, we want to praise him and love him and we want to know his heart because of that. And that's a reality that we must consider. I think it was a little over a month ago now, but one of, uh, one of my children, uh, our children, I won't say who, to not embarrass them, but came from another room to me and said, just straightforwardly, Dad, bad news. I made a total mess. Good news. I cleaned it all up. I believed the first part. I totally believed he made a terrible mess. I was more suspicious when he said, and I cleaned it all up. I was curious. Like, this is the one that usually, when we suggest cleaning up, loses all sense of energy or capacity to do anything. And so, when so strongly there was this, but I cleaned it all up, I just want to go look and see what that looks like. Sure enough, it didn't look like I cleaned it all up. And so I could believe totally the bad news I couldn't believe the good news. When it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what we get to communicate, there is bad news to it. There is a reality that's sobering that we have to consider. But the good news is better than the bad news. The good news is more awesome than the bad news. It's good news that can undo the bad news. And the heart of this psalm gets to it. In this reality that the way of the wicked will be brought to ruin. In our faith as Christians, we believe that if this is who God is, and someone came into this world and entered into our story and claimed to be God in the flesh, then this would have to be how this person lived. And so in this description of who God is, we also see an amazing picture of how Jesus lived. Uh, Sometimes we can think, uh, if you do read your Bible or you grew up in a church context, then you understand that there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. You know that there are some Old Testament descriptions like Isaiah 53, that if you read Isaiah 53, written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, and then you read what happened to Jesus, you're just amazed, like, You can't explain this away, except that Jesus is who is described in Isaiah 53, that how could someone hundreds of years before describe so powerfully what would happen to Jesus in his final moments here on earth? And it's something that for us as Christians, we look at and say, it builds our faith up. Yes, this must be him. We wouldn't as regularly come to something like Psalm 146 in the same way, but we can Because if this describes who God is, and Jesus was God in the flesh, living out among us, then everything it says here about the Father must be true about the Son. 
He lived his life like this. And he had and exhibited this kind of compassion. So I just printed out Psalm 146 on a separate piece of paper and then took each description that it gives of God and then wrote a note of where in Jesus' life we saw this displayed. So blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord is God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and is all that is in them. And we have in the life of Jesus, in the gospel of Mark chapter 4, this time when Jesus is with the disciples out on the sea, and the, the waves are strong, and they're worried about their safety, and they're worried about their lives. They wake him up, and he speaks and calms the sea. And their response is, well, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? He keeps faith forever. There was a moment in one of Jesus' closest followers' lives, Peter, when Peter was so afraid of being identified with Jesus that he denied him three times. But before that ever happened, Jesus said to Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And Christ kept faith forever for Peter. He said to him, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. He executes justice for the oppressed. There was an occasion when a group of people brought a woman to Jesus and said she was guilty of adultery and they threw her down at Jesus' feet just ready for him to get everyone going and to stone her to death. And he, he wrote something down in the sand that we don't even know what it was, but he said, hey, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. And they all walked away. And her life was spared. And he said to her, go and sin no more. God gives food to the hungry. Christ fed a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children, all of Jewish background shortly thereafter. He fed a crowd of 4,000 people, primarily Gentile in background, to show that he does not discriminate, that he will feed the hungry, whoever the hungry are, Jew or Gentile, male or female. The Lord sets the prisoner free. He encountered someone who was so possessed by demons and so imprisoned by that reality that he lived in a cemetery. No one knew what to do with him. They couldn't bind him. They couldn't control him. And so they just secluded him. He lived, it says, among the tombs. He lived where the dead were buried. And when he encountered Jesus, he was set free. He was delivered from that reality. It says, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. A couple brought a young man to Jesus and others were talking, who sinned that this young person was born blind? Jesus said, no one sinned that he was born blind. And he gave him the ability to see the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. There was once a criminal hanging on a cross. Moments from eternity. Guilty 
is charged about to enter into eternity. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And he said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. <laughs> the Lord loves the righteous. Nicodemus, a priest who knows the law, who's seeking the truth, and Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. If you want to enter this kingdom, everyone has to. Even you in your righteousness and in his love for him, he invites him to consider it. When Nicodemus has come to him in the cover of the darkness of night, he says, Nicodemus, you're going to have to do this out in the open. Be willing to be childlike, made a fool, looked down upon by others if that's what it means. But you're invited. You must be born again. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He saw the crowds, it says in Mark chapter 6. A group of people out in the wilderness. And they were like a sheep without a shepherd. No one seemed to be in charge. No one with the authority to care for them. And he had them all sit down. And he had compassion on them. It says the Lord upholds the widow. In Luke 21, he identifies in a massive crowd of people at the temple at the time of the celebration of the Passover and people offering very large gifts and sacrifices and he brings all of the attention of his disciples on a poor widow who can only throw in two coins, a very, very small contribution. But he points her out and says of, of what everyone else sees and notices and what stands out, he sees the widow and he sees her offering, and he sees that it is of more value than what anyone else has offered. He looks after the fatherless. In his departure, he said to his disciples, I will send you the Holy Spirit because I will not leave you as orphans. So I'm going to send someone to be with you because I care about you. This is how Jesus lived his life for all of his followers. This is what we communicate to the world. That's why the, the quote on the back of your handout is, the gospel is not good advice to men, but good news about Christ. It's not an invitation for us to do anything, but a declaration of what God has done. He came and did all of these things, and then we see most powerfully that not only is this how Jesus lived, but this is why Jesus died. In his exhibiting all of this care and compassion and concern for all of these people, and we included in that, we see that he loved his father the most. <laughs> if you go back to Psalm 146, in the first two verses, I'll praise the Lord, I'll praise the Lord, O oh my soul, and as long as I live and as long as I have my being, Jesus prayed that when he was in Gethsemane. When the choice before him was a sacrifice on behalf of the world so that we who were wicked could be forgiven or the avoidance of the pain of the cross, the avoidance of being in prison, the avoidance of being uh, misaligned, the avoidance of injustice, 
in that garden, he submitted himself and prayed to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. See, it's an amazing thing to know that Jesus did all of these acts of compassion and concern, but it's a whole nother level of wonder to realize that he experienced all of this injustice and pain as a substitute for us. He became oppressed. He became hungry. On the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out a fatherless prayer. The good news is better than the bad news. That he would receive all of that and experience it in a mysterious way for us, for the forgiveness of our sins, that this he was willing to do. He was willing to die, to redeem us, to reconcile us. No one has fulfilled and lived out Psalm 146 in this way. And so when we read in verse 3, when it says, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Jesus took that up, and one of his most popular titles was the son of man. And he showed that he alone could be the son of man in whom we could put our trust, who when he died, his plans did not perish, but they were confirmed and sealed forever, never to be taken away by anyone else. Wow. This is what we get to communicate to the world, the uniqueness of who Jesus is. And so this is why in John 17, we read this statement, and this is what we close with. John 17 and verse 3. If this is who God is, and this is how Jesus lived, and this is why Jesus died, then we understand the statement made in John 17, 3, that this is eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Have you ever trusted Christ in this way? Have you come to a place to believe that this is really who God is? And that Christ lived his life in this way and offered his life as a sacrifice for our sins. If you have, then knowing him is eternal life that we get to start experiencing now and it lasts forever. And if you haven't, this is something that you could choose today. You chose whether to get up this morning or not and get out of the house. Most of you got out of your pajamas. It looks like all of you did. You chose whether to get into your car. You chose whether to come here or someone else. You chose where to sit. You're going to choose who you talk to or not when you leave. You can choose to be quiet or you can choose to be open. And you can choose to submit yourself to the maker of heaven and earth. You can give your heart to him and put your trust in him and not anyone else to know him in this way and to have eternal life. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we are thank you. We are so thankful for the greatness of your Son and the glory of what we get communicated to our own hearts that you did not simply make us, but that you love us and that in your love for us, you moved heaven and earth to rescue us, to redeem us, to offer yourself as a sacrifice for us. We thank you for the great privilege that it is as your followers to proclaim this good news, to communicate it to the world, that there is no one outside of your reach, that there is no one who has sinned so great or fallen so far that you can't clean up the mess that they've made. Father, help us to communicate this well. Help our lives to reflect it. Help the the joyfulness and the blessing of knowing that you are our help and our hope to be manifested in our sacrificial giving and loving and caring for those that we do not know. Help us to live the life that your son lived, to fight against sin and all that is selfish and to pursue what is right and good and true and beautiful but help us to also never point anyone's attention to ourselves, but always to point it to you. You are the Savior. You are the one worthy of our praise. And so it's in your name that we pray. Amen.